Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is God and Jesus, an overview. What's the difference between God and Jesus? Many Christians believe they are mysteriously one in being, but what do the scriptures teach? It turns out that the Bible clearly distinguishes between these two individuals and their attributes preclude their metaphysical oneness. Listen in to hear the evidence for why Jesus is the Son of God rather than God the Son. This lecture was part of a class called Exploring Scripture. To access more of this class, log on to lhim.org and look under Educational Downloads. Good morning. morning. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you'd like to flip in that direction. This morning I'll be sharing on the title God and Jesus, which is kind of nebulous, I know, but... I'm trying to do a brief overview of these two major, major subjects. Who is God and who is Jesus? And so there are a lot of things I'm probably going to leave out, but I gave you a lot of notes. So anything that I skip over, feel free to go back and look up on your own. And the thing I'd like to start with is the time that the people of God first came to meet God. And uh, the children of Israel were were chosen to be the people of God. And they lived in Egypt, and they were horribly oppressed in Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they began worshiping other gods, the gods of the Egyptians, you know, when in Rome, right? So they they worshiped Apis and Hathor and Ra and Nut. You know, imagine a god named Nut, you know. It's kind (laughs) of, doesn't sound right, right? But in Egyptian, Nut probably means something really cool, so... But, uh, so they worshipped these other gods. So uh, God decided to bring them out of their oppression to liberate his people and bring them to this mountain that we call Mount Sinai. It's also called Mount Horeb. Why it has two names, I don't know, but it, it's got two names. And it's at this mountain that God introduced himself to his people that he had just rescued. And so God doesn't do it in a small way. There's no still small voice on this occasion. Instead, God torches the mountain with a big fire. So the, the mountain's on, on fire at the top of it. Think like volcano slash forest fire combined type of thing. The mountain's on fire. There's thunder. The earth is quaking. There's the sound of a trumpet. And then God audibly speaks to his people and introduces himself to them. And so this is the first time that the people of God really meet God. And they, you know, the, the people who had come before had known God in different ways, but this is the first time that God really introduces himself on a grand scale like this. And so in Deuteronomy 4, we're going to start in verse 32, Moses is retelling what had happened. This is 40 years after the people met God on Mount Sinai. And a lot of the people that Moses is talking to here were just little kids. A lot of them weren't even born yet. And some of them, uh, I'm sure remembered this event. So he's, he's, he's giving them an overview of what had happened and reminding them of what it was like when they met their God. Deuteronomy 4.32 says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, 
since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking to them in the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? So he, he's saying to him, okay, so from the beginning of the world up until this day, has anything like this ever happened? This is totally unique. There's nothing like this that has ever happened. Verse 34, or has a God tried to go take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? So he says, you know, has anyone ever met God and heard his voice and survived? Question number two, has anyone, has anyone ever even heard of a God who takes one nation out from the midst of another nation and rescues them with these miracles and the ten plagues and all these different signs. Uh, you notice there in verse 34, it says, The Lord, your God, and uh, the L-O-R-D is all capitalized, which means that it's the name of God in the original Hebrew text. It's the name Yahweh. And so I'm just going to substitute Yahweh for the Lord. And it, it gives it a better flavor, I think. It says, As Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now that was meaningful to them because... There were different gods in Egypt. Like I said before, you had Ra, the, the sun god, right? You had uh, Nut, the sky god. You know, you had, <laughs> the, there was a god for the Nile River. You know, there's God for all these. They all had different names. And so this is the introduction of a new god. And this new god has just humiliated all of those other gods through the ten plagues. And he's saying that he is your god. Uh, the next verse there. Verse 35, to you it was shown, so what's the point? Why did God show up to these people on the mountain? Why did he rescue them from Egypt? To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God. There is no other besides him. Now I think, I think we could close the Bible there and say we've answered the first question, who is God, sufficiently and move on. But... Uh, then you wouldn't get your full 45 minutes worth, you know, and I know that would just be tragic. So I'm going to read about a bazillion verses. But my, my, my drumbeat throughout all of these verses is, is just simply that statement. Yahweh, He is God, and there is no other besides Him. That's it. Now, there are different kinds of monotheism. There's complex monotheism, and there's simple monotheism. This is simple monotheism. There is a God. He has a name, and that's it, period. We don't need an army of philosophers to tease out the nuances of that statement. You know, it's just Yahweh is our God. Just like my wife can say, Sean is my husband. You know, we don't need to get into a, a deep description of what uh, Sean means and husband means. You know, we just get it. it. It's not hard. So, Yahweh is God. The next verse, verse 36. Out of the heavens, He lets you hear His voice to discipline you. And on earth, He lets you see His great fire. You heard His words from the midst of the fire. Imagine that. One of these millions of people at the base of this mountain. The mountain's on fire and God speaks from the midst of the fire. Because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them. And He personally brought you from Egypt by His great power driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and give to you the land of an inheritance, 
for an inheritance as it is this day. Verse 39. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Again, a very powerful, clear verse about who God is. Um, I wonder if you could pick out the pronouns in this verse for me. This is verse uh, 35 and 36 that we just read. And uh, what do you think is the first pronoun? Do you, do you know what pronouns are? You, right. So uh, pronouns are those little words that refer to a person or a thing. Uh, the next pronoun in there is it. You see it there? It refers not to a person. Okay, It refers to a thing. You know, um, if, if we didn't have pronouns, our sentences would go like this. Blake Courtright is our video uh, production manager. How about that for a title? Blake is sitting in the back of the room. Blake is wearing a headset with a microphone on it. He's probably communicating to his camera people. Camera women, actually, in this, in this case. Um, Blake is uh, doing a fine job back there. And you have to just keep saying Blake over and over and over again. Now, watch this. I'm going to pro- put pronouns in here. Blake Courtright is in charge of our video production uh, well, really, John, I think, is. But for this sake, we'll just say Blake. And he is wearing a headset. He, you know, and so we put the pronouns in there. I know this is grammar. But, you know, my mom loves it, so we have to indulge that. But uh, pronouns are those little words that refer back to the person you're talking about. And so there are singular pronouns and there are plural pronouns. So if I say, we are going to the store, is that singular or plural? Plural. Right. Simple. This is not complicated stuff. And if I say I'm going to the store, what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> just, just me, right? Um, so, and if I say I'm going to the store and no one else is coming with me, that would really clarify that I'm the only one going to the store. Like you couldn't get other people to come too if I said that. So, this is how pronouns work. We've highlighted all the pronouns There they are. All the pronouns that refer to God in these two verses are pretty easy to spot because they're all with a capital H on them. So you have he and him and he and his and he and his and his. He is a singular or a plural pronoun. What do you think? Singular. Okay. Now, I didn't count these, but somebody has told me there are about 20,000 of these in the Bible referring to God, and they're all singular. So... That would lead me to the conclusion that God, overwhelmingly, is a singular individual. So, that's, that's I think, the, the point of the singular pronoun is that he is a singular individual. All right, let, let's, keep, let's keep going. We don't want to belabor that. Chapter 5, verse 1. Moses retells what God's words were when he spoke from the midst of the fire. What did God say? What were his lines? Now, when you introduce yourself to a group of people, you usually start with, I am your name, and then state your relationship to them. I am Sean Finnegan. You know, I happen to know you from so-and-so, or whatever it is, you know, depending on what the context is. Well, what does God do when he introduces himself to the people? It says in verse... uh, I love verse 4, 5, 4. Deuteronomy 5, 4. Yahweh spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Isn't that incredible? Verse 6. I, what did he say? I am Yahweh your God. He tells him his name. 
He tells them his relationship. He's not their husband, their boyfriend, their ATM machine. He is their God, right? I am Yahweh, your God. Who, and what did he do for them? He brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You, and so what's the very first command? Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. So that's the very first thing of the Ten Commandments is no other gods ahead of Yahweh, who is the God of Israel. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, the next one, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. So these commandments at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments are focused on God's worship, that we should be single-hearted in our worship of Yahweh because He's the only God and we're not to have any other gods ahead of Him. Um, it goes on to say in verse 22, These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice. He added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. Verse 24. You said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any longer, then we will die. So the people say, okay, we believe it, he's God, no question. He spoke to us audibly with a voice from the midst of the fire. Moses, we've heard enough, this is all we can handle, we feel like we're going to die. I imagine when God spoke, his voice penetrated their bones, don't you think? I bet it was extremely intense. And... Basically, what the people say is, Moses, look, you go talk to God. We'll be over here. And anything he tells you, just tell to us. And we're okay with that. We don't need to hear his voice anymore. Um, and so that's the introduction of God to the people. Moses goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to give the people more commands. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Um, this we have in Hebrew. I found a picture of it on the internet. And uh, this is, what it says there is this verse that we just read, which in Hebrew is, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad, which is translated as, Hero Israel, Yahweh, our God is one Yahweh. Uh, so the, the, this, and this ha just happens to be the core creed of the people of God from thou over 3,000 years now. You know, 3,500 years is a long time to hold to a certain declaration. And the, the, the point of the statement is that Yahweh is one. There's only one Yahweh. Got it? All right. Let's go on. Uh, verse 5. Now that we have who God is straight, verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So we have to understand who God is, and then... We're instructed to love God. You see how it works? If you love God but you don't know who God is, that's doing it backwards. And so we want to know who God is and then follow by loving Him. You know, let's go to Mark 12. Keep your uh, finger 
in Deuteronomy, though. Mark chapter 12. You know, there was this one time that Jesus was coming under some pretty heavy attack, and people were asking him questions, and they were asking questions in order to trick him, to say something that they could use against him. And Jesus just kept answering these questions brilliantly and silencing these guys who were trying to stump him. And there was this scribe standing by, and he, he saw Jesus was answering these questions so well, and he gets really impressed. And so he goes over to Jesus, and his heart's not to try to trick Jesus. He just wants to see, he wants to check him out. You know, he wants to size him up, see what he's all about. And so in Mark 12, verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? You know, if you're a scribe, a scribe is somebody that copies the Bible and also that interprets the Bible and explains it to the people. This is, this is like a very relevant question. What do you think is the greatest commandment? Now, the scribes had counted 613. So, you know, it's like not really good odds. But Jesus nails it. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost, the first and great commandment is, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God is one Lord. Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus is a Jew who is having a conversation with another Jew about who the Jewish God is. And they agree that the Shema, that the creed that I have up on the screen here is the correct definition of God. Now, Jesus does not go on to say, and, by the way, I am also God, or there is also this extra addition we need to put on here. He does not do that. Instead, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Verse 32, what is the scribe's response? The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, notice the singular pronoun, right? He is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe agrees with Jesus on who God is. We have great unity here between these two. And Jesus compliments him. Jesus answered and said to him that he answered intelligently. When Jesus saw he answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So, Jesus and this Jewish scribe agree on who God is. And that, that is that He is one and there is no one else besides Him. Um, that verse 32 there is an actual direct, direct quotation from Deuteronomy 4.35, which we had up a second ago. So, they're equating these verses together. They're seeing that these things work together and they make sense. So, I've got some, some other verses here. Uh, but I just had a couple of notes on the Shema I wanted to read to you. It's, it's, it's the core creed of Israel. You know, I mean, it's like the thing that you would say if a terrorist held a gun to your head and said, uh, submit and, and deny your God. What would a Jewish person do? They would say the Shema and die. You know, and, and, that's, and that's the core of, of the people. And I know that it's very popular to say that God is 
is complex in his monotheism and to say that there are multiple persons in God. But it's really not compatible with this. The core creed is a statement that Yahweh is one. He's not multiple persons. That would be more than one, right? He is a singular individual. This one Yahweh is our God. Simple, right? So let's move on to some other verses. We're not going to turn to them because that would ruin the machine gun effect that I want to have. Second Samuel 7.22 For this reason you are great, O Lord Yahweh, for there is none like you. Right? There's none like Yahweh. And here there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Second Kings 19.19 19, Now, O Yahweh our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, and the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. That's the prayer of Hezekiah. Um, asking, you know, and he basically saying, God, deliver us so that everyone will know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. What does God do? He delivers them. He answers that prayer, confirming its truth. 1 Corinthians 17, 20. O Yahweh, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Psalm 88, verses 8 to 10. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. You know, we could keep going and keep going with these verses. There's lots of them, and I put in too many. But here's another one. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Now, back to going to the store, and I say, like, nobody else is going, just me. God says that, first of all, he uses the word I, which is a pronoun, Singular or plural? As singular as it gets, right? I mean, it's even skinny and easy to see. That It almost looks like a one, doesn't it? An I, right? Simple. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, right? So God claims to be the creator of all things. And then he also claims that he did it by himself. And then he says, all alone, right? So were there others who created the heavens and the earth with Yahweh. No, because he did it by himself. You see? Uh, the, the next one, too, says something very similar. I am Yahweh and there is no other. You know, he says that a lot. In, in your notes, I really, I know you don't believe me, but I really exercise incredible restraint. I had twice as many verses in my document that I was working from than what I put in your notes. And that was still too many. But there's lots of these. You know, he's very careful to claim to be the only God. I am Yahweh, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all of these things. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, 
He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is none else. So this is the drum I was telling you I was going to beat. Um, We don't have to read all of these verses. It goes on quite a bit. There's Jeremiah, more Jeremiah, Zechariah. And here's Jesus. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus also says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is in prayer to his Father. Verse 1, he started the prayer of Father. And in verse 3, he says, You are the only true God. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. This is Paul the Apostle. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so we get from this a very simple formulation that there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. First uh, Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is not included in the one God of that verse. Uh, James 2.19, this is comical. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in shudder. You know, even the demons figure that one out. You think you're you know, pretty fancy because you figured that out. And then we have Jude. We'll get to that in a second. Um, who is God? Yahweh. Are there any other gods besides Yahweh? Okay. How many Yahwehs are there? Okay. Th- then we, we have completed our... Who is God? Part of this. God is Yahweh. He's the only God. He's famous for things. Like Babe Ruth is famous for hitting home runs. God's famous for creating everything, for delivering his people out of Egypt, and for bringing them back from exile. Those are three of the big things that come up over and over throughout the scripture. He's going to be famous for things in the future too, like when he sends his son to take over the world and establish justice and peace and so on. But that is who our God is. You know, God had a son. Yahweh had a son. And we read about that in Luke chapter 1. So let's flip to Luke. I hope you're somewhere near Luke. Probably not. But Luke is in the New Testament. It's the third gospel. It's the longest gospel. And in Luke chapter 1, we read about how the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary before she was pregnant, which kind of spooked her a little bit. Verse 32, or verse 31, the angel Gabriel. Now, these are the words of an angel, you know, so it's very... And behold, Luke one thirty-one. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High... And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So, she's going to have a son. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. Now, does that mean that Joseph, her husband, or she's betrothed to Joseph, does that mean that Joseph is the Most High, and his son would be the Son of the Most High? You know, I mean, you could, she doesn't really have this all worked out yet. So, and she doesn't really think that's the case. So she asks a question, verse 34. 
Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? You know, how is this going to work, you know, angel? 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, God himself is going to father the child miraculously through the Holy Spirit. And so the child is biologically, if we could use that word, the son of God. On the, like if you drew a family tree of Jesus, on the mother's side it would go back and back and back. On, the, on his dad's side there would just be one, God. You know what I mean? So that, that's how it, it worked out. Jesus is the son of God. He's destined to, what, sit on the throne of David and rule over Jacob forever. Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's just back a little bit. Who is Jesus? First of all, Jesus is the Son of God. He was born the Son of God. He didn't have to earn being the Son of God. He didn't have to work his way up to it. He was the Son of God. Just like Adam was the Son of God. He was created by God. Um, It was not that God adopted him when he saw that Jesus was so great. It was rather that from his birth he was the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 2 we have the visit of the Magi. And in verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now this is very interesting. We have in verse 1... Or sorry, in verse 2, what's the question? Where's the king of the Jews? We, we saw his star. We know he's been born. Where's the king of the Jews? What does Herod do? He asks the question of uh, the chief priests and the scribes, who didn't get along usually, um, and he said, where's the Messiah to be born? What do we get from this? The Messiah is the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews is the Messiah. What does it mean to be the Messiah in the Bible? We could read lots of verses from the Old Testament, and Richard Elton shared with us some last Tuesday, but it means that you are going to be the king of the Jews. Are you only going to rule over the Jews? No, because the Old Testament clearly states that the Messiah will rule over the Jewish nation and then through the Jewish nation rule over the rest of the world. That's Psalm 2, if you want to read that sometime, where the Son of God says... um, reports that God said, ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as a possession. So the Messiah is the king of the Jews. Not only that, also the king of the world. And so that's the, the next thing about who Jesus, uh, who Jesus is. Mark chapter 8. Flip to the next gospel there. I know we're doing a good deal of flipping, but it's good to move, your, move, move around a bit, you know. Uh, Mark chapter 8, Jesus is doing all these miracles. His ministry is underway. He's starting to become popular. He's starting to become a threat to the powers that be. And he asks a a very political question, a question that um, I'm sure many politicians have asked in the past, which is, who do people say that I am? What's the buzz on the street? What are people saying about me? Do they think... I've got what it takes. You know, I'm not saying that Jesus was asking it in that way, but that's a very common question if you are a political leader, is what do the people think, right? 
Messiah is a political leader. A king is a political leader. I know we don't have kings in the United States, but trust me, I've asked the, the British people in my life, and they have assured me the king is a British or a political person. So in Mark chapter 8, it says in verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? What's the buzz on the street here? Verse 28, they told him, saying, Oh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. So those were the options, right? It's not like some people said, Well, some people think you're a liar, other people think you're crazy, and other people think you're God. No, the, the options were you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, or you're Elijah, who has come, or you're one of the prophets. Those are all human beings. You know, it wasn't like some people think you're God, some people think you're angel. And some people think you're a hypostatic union of God and man. You know, it was like you're, you're it was, the answer was, what kind of man are you? A prophet of this type or that type? Those were the different options. And so the response was, but he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. The word Christ is just the Greek way of saying Messiah. It's the same exact word. So that's it, period. You know, we can read from Matthew, he says, you are the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know, again, just what we have seen so far. And so Jesus was the Messiah. And his response is, he warned them to tell no one about it. Why? Because as soon as it gets out that he claims to be the Messiah, things are going to heat up and it's going to be really hard to deal with life as we know it. Um, so, because there was already somebody in charge, that's why. And they would consider Jesus a threat, which they eventually did. The next thing, the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God, He's the King of the Jews, He is the Messiah, and He is the Son of Man. We're not going to flip back to Daniel 7, but it says that Daniel was having a vision. He saw in the clouds one like a Son of Man coming with power. To Him was given power and authority and a kingdom that all nations would serve Him. And his kingdom will never end, is what it says, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And so the Son of Man is the number one title Jesus uses to refer to himself. Um, he doesn't go around saying, you know, um, the Messiah this, the Messiah that. You know, he kind of kept that pretty quiet until later on. But he would say the Son of Man because the Son of Man meant a human being. And it also meant this figure from Daniel 7, but only... Only if you knew that's what he was talking about would you think that. You know what I mean? It was kind of like a, a phrase that could work either way. Um, so the Son of Man is the one destined to come in the clouds, take over the world, and rule over it forever. The next thing is, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Um, and there's many verses we could go to about that. But we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Not only is he the Son of God, not only is he the Messiah, not only is he the one coming to rule, but he's also the sacrifice for our sins. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we come upon a very early creed of the Christian community. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He wasn't just knocked off as a political threat. His death meant something. It accomplished something. And that something is that our sins were paid for. And God raised him from the dead. He is the resurrected Lord. You know, we could say lots about the resurrection of Jesus, couldn't we? Um, Jesus is raised from the... When Jesus was raised from the dead, it flipped everything upside down. All the expectations and ideas that people had about him, suspicions that maybe he was a false messiah or whatever, they were all done away with when God did this cosmic event of bringing somebody through death and out the other side into the life of the age to come. When Jesus was resurrected... He was resurrected to immortality. That means he would never die again. And so this is a huge event, and it makes the sacrifice of Jesus work. It makes it make sense. Um, The last thing is, he's the Lord at the right hand of God. In Psalm 110, we read about how Yahweh says to David's Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, and God says to him, he is going to be at this person's right hand, defeating his enemies. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he is going to rule from Zion. That's what it says in Psalm 110. Um, And so Jesus is the Lord at the right hand of God. And guess what? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back... All of these things are going to be fulfilled. He is going to come in the clouds like the Son of Man. He is going to sit on the throne of David like the Messiah. He is going to rule over the Jews like the King of the Jews and over the rest of the world because he is the true Lord of the world, having been put in that position by his Father. And so um, that's who Jesus is. Now, there are many shared attributes of God and Jesus. There are many things that they did together. Okay, like for example, um, if some if you're drowning in an ocean and somebody comes to rescue you in a boat, and there's the pilot or the captain, not the pilot, the captain of the ship, and there's also the uh, the guy on the deck that actually holds the rope. The captain of the ship gets the ship to you because they heard the rescue call, and then the guy on the deck throws the rope down and you grab it and you and you pull it up. And you, 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 would go, you would say to the person who pulled you up out of the rope, he's my savior. He saved me. But the captain is also your savior, isn't he? Because he got the boat there. You know? Or you could say the Coast Guard saved me because they're the ones that flew overhead and saw you and then called the boat in. So just because you call one person the savior doesn't mean another person isn't also the same savior working together. You see how that works? And so Jesus is our savior and God is our savior. How did God save us? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so they are both our Savior, and that's not a problem. Um, They are both our Redeemer. They're both called King and Judge. They're both called the Rock. Uh, They both forgave sins. They loved us. We are to love them. uh, And they will both together establish the kingdom in the world at the end. And it comes in stages. We have details on that in the Bible, how Jesus is going to be sent first and clean up the place for about a thousand years and then God is going to come down and dwell with us. And, but yet they're working together. It's not called the kingdom of Jesus. It's still called the kingdom of God because Jesus is doing it on God's behalf for God. Um, we could list many other commonalities between God and Jesus. There are lots of them. Um, but I also wanted to list some differences between the two just so that we could clarify what these differences are. 
So, whoa, that's a little too intense. Jesus had a beginning, whereas God has always existed. You have to check that out. Matthew 1.18 and Romans 1.3. The word in Matthew 1.18 is actually the word Genesis, which means the beginning. That's why it's the beginning of the Bible. Um, Jesus grew in wisdom, whereas God's understanding is infinite. Jesus could do nothing on his own. He says that a number of times, whereas God can do all things. Jesus prayed. You know what? God does not pray. He only receives prayer. And I don't have a verse for that because he doesn't pray. So, I mean, it's not like there's a verse. Jesus learned obedience. God does not obey. He makes the rules, right? I mean, who's God obeying, right? Um, Jesus did not know some things, like he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. He doesn't know who touched him. He, he had some limitations, just like all humans do, although he is the quintessential man. He is the pinnacle of humanity. He is what we all strive to be, and he was perfect without sin. But God knows everything. And when Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man or the angels, he says, but my Father alone. God still knows. You see how that works? Um, here's some more. Jesus slept. God never sleeps or slumbers. Jesus grew weary. Uh, he rested at the well in John 4. God never grows weary. Thank God, right? You remember when Elijah was going at it with the prophets of Baal? There's about 450 to 1. And Elijah was there, these 450 prophets of Baal. These prophets of Baal are carrying on. They're cutting themselves. They're jumping up and down. They're breaking the altar. And you know what Elijah says? He says, you know, maybe, maybe Baal is sleeping. And needs to be wakened up from sleep. Maybe Baal is going on a journey. And he's going to come back later. Maybe, maybe he's whatever. And he, he actually says that about their God. And that, of course, makes him carry on even more, right? But our God does not sleep, amen? Our God does not go on a journey. And is, he's not an absent landlord or something like that. Our God is here. He's everywhere around us all the time. He never grows weary. Imagine if God grew weary and like for a minute yawned or something and Pluto sped out of orbit. Well, Pluto's not even a real planet anymore, I guess. But the sun, you know, hiccuped. You know, eight minutes later, you know, tremors on earth. You know, God does not grow weary. Thank God. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Um, and yet God cannot be tempted by evil. Uh, it says also in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in all points, like we are, yet without sin. And that's incredible. You last a year without sin. That's all I'm asking is one year. He did it his whole life. His whole life. Every time there was the temptation, he chose to follow and trust in God. And that is absolutely sensational if he's a human being. But if he's God, if Jesus is God... What's the big deal? God cannot be tempted by evil. So, just imagine it. Satan comes up to, to God, pretending Jesus is God. Satan comes up to God in the wilderness and says, um, If you're really the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus says, You know, man does not live by bread alone, Satan. He lives by every uh, word out of the mouth of me. I mean, God. And then Satan says, come on, God, do we really have to go through this? Do I have to do my lines? I know you're not going to fall for it. This is stupid. And then Jesus says, shut up. You have your instructions. Tempt me about whether or not I jump off the temple pinnacle thing. Okay. If you're really the son of God, you know, I mean, it would just be a charade, wouldn't it? But yet if it's a human being face to face with Satan, we have a replay of the Garden of Eden. 
We have a second Adam facing off with the serpent. And this time, who wins? Not the serpent. This time, somebody stands up and obeys God to the end. Jesus is a human being. God is not human. There's actually a verse, a few verses that say God is not human. Just in case we're curious about that. Uh, Jesus died for our sins. God cannot die. In 1 Timothy 1.17, it says God is immortal. Mortal means you can die. Immortal means you cannot die. Which means if you shot God with a gun, he wouldn't die. If you lit God on fire, he wouldn't die. If you hit him with a nuclear bomb, he would not die. Because God is immortal. Jesus was crucified and died for our sins. And I'm so thankful he could die so that our sins would be paid for. Um, Jesus will be, the sub, be, will be subject to God forever. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which talks about how after Jesus has ruled until all his enemies are under his feet, he will turn the kingdom over to God so that he would be all in all. Whereas God is above all. God is not subject to anyone else. He is supreme. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. The last point I wanted to make is that Jesus worshipped God. Jesus has a God. And the, question, the way I reason it out is I say, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. I want to do whatever he says. Jesus worshipped this God. Therefore, I want to worship this God too. See how that, that reasoning works? And so... Even in his glorified, resurrected, ascended at the right hand of God's state, Jesus says the following. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. Jesus has a God whom he worships. And that God is the God of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. He is our Father. He is the Creator. And he authorized Jesus to have the ministry that Jesus had. This is not to denigrate Jesus, to bring him down to our level. Nothing like that. We just want to believe what the Scripture says. And I think when we get hold of the humanity of Jesus, it lifts him up. Because it's really impressive. And you know what else? We can look at Jesus and say, He's really a human being? I'm really a human being too. I can do this. I can do this. Because Jesus did it, I can do it. If Jesus were an angel or an alien or God or something not human, that would make it really hard to look at and say, Be just like Christ. But since he is a human being, we can look at him and say we can do it too. And we know that it's hard, but through the Spirit, Christ lives within us to this day. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to serve you, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, because as your Son has told us, those are the people that you are looking for to be your worshipers, those who worship you wholeheartedly and in truth. And Father, we don't claim to know everything. We don't claim to know even 1% about who you are. We just want to know what you've revealed about yourself. And we want to serve you as your people and not fall by the wayside 
like the, your people have in the past into idolatry or into other things. God, help our hearts to be single, devoted to you. Help us to worship you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And help us to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.